بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير وبعد الحمد لله we are in this new chapter that we began last week that started on page 61 and the title of this chapter is the ethereal realities in the physical attributes of the Prophet so if we were to summarize the theme of this chapter we would say the author is looking at the physical description of the Prophet Muhammad and looking at the miraculous nature of some of his physical descriptions and how they connect to certain miraculous gifts that Allah Ta'ala gave him. So last week we looked at from page 64 the height of the Prophet and then the uniqueness of the blessed face of the Messenger of Allah and we ended with a discussion on the blessed eyes of the Prophet and we stopped there so we're going to pick up from this point and move forward inshallah most of our time we'll be looking just at the eyesight and the vision of the Prophet So in the beginning of this section, the author mentions a number of narrations, and there's dozens of them, that describe the sight of the Messenger of Allah And we said last week that as it relates to the sight, there's three factors or three aspects. There is him seeing in the dark in ways that ordinary humans cannot, as a divine gift. That's number one. Then they're seeing at vast distances. And number three, anyone remember? Seeing behind him as he sees in front of him. That's the main focus of this section. So for example, he mentions here that Bukhari and Muslim have both related that the Messenger of Allah said, Do you not look at this qibla of mine? I swear by Allah, your bowing and prostrate or prostrating are not hidden from me. I certainly see from behind me. And Muslim relates from Anas that the Messenger of Allah said, O people, I am your Imam or I am in front of you. So do not precede me in bowing or prostrating for I certainly see you from the front and from behind me. So these narrations, when you collect them all together, you see that they are linked to two things. They're linked to ensuring that the rows are straight before the prayer begins, taswit al-safuf, and they're linked to him or them not preceding him in the ruku' and sujood. 
Now, if you go to any masjid anywhere in the world and you ask the imams what is the number one problem that they see happening in the salat that doesn't get corrected no matter how many times they remind people, they'll all tell you it's people beating the imam, going faster than the imam, going into rukur before him, and especially going into sujood before him, where their head lands on the ground even before the imam. Okay, think about it. The imam goes at a certain speed when they're going into sujood. A person behind him may just, just plop themselves down and they actually get there first. Ideally, yeah. Yeah, because we have to let him finish. Because sometimes I've noticed some translation like Allahu Akbar and like some sisters. So Allah It's definitely a problem. Yeah. It's definitely a problem with people who are, say, behind the second, third, fourth row, and then sisters mm -hmm. who can't see the imam. Yeah. And they're only going based on sound. Mm -hmm. Or if they're not going based on sound, they're going based on what everyone else is doing. Mm -hmm. So they just go with the same yeah. flow as everyone else. In the books of fiqh, uh, they mention that the imam should utter the takbir uh, as they are in the process of moving upwards, kind of halfway, right? Because think about it, if the imam is in the rukur, and they start saying, hamida, as they're in the rukur, right as they're going, a person might just stand, even though they're still rising. But if he rises and says it as he's halfway there, so people are going to then move after him. Um, so this is what is mentioned in some of the, the madhahib that the, the takbir should be uttered by the imam in such a way that he is almost at that second position before he completes it. So that people aren't just going with the sound and beating him to it, right? Both, when Imam says both slams, then they say yeah. salam. Yeah. Well, one salam is enough. No, I mean, I do it when Imam says one salam, and then I do salam. Mm -hmm. And some people, right. they wait till Imam says both, both. salams. Yeah. 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 That. yeah, that's fine. Yeah, either one is fine. Yeah. yeah. So, because the first salam is what uh, exits one from the prayer. So when he does the first salam, the salah is finished. The second salam, uh, if it's not said, the prayer is still valid. So if you wait for him to do it just to be on the safe side, that's fine. If you do it after the first salam, as he's going into the second, that's also fine. Yeah. Okay, so it relates to those two issues, right? Not uh, preceding the imam in the rukur and sujood and having the straight rows. So that... Uh, there's about a dozen of these narrations. Uh, I have them actually collected here in this work. Um, 
this one sheikh put them all together in one place, analyzing them, and then the commentaries by the scholars about what they could possibly mean, and, and so on and so forth. Some of this will be shared by the author here. He goes, and this is where we left off, he says, Sheikh Fawzi Ahmed has said, so this is what we call, I guess you could call this an ishara. An ishara is, it's a, a subtle allusion, not illusion, allusion, allusion to something subtle, latif, a, a meaning that is indirectly gleaned from the hadith and not explicitly stated, right? So that, you know, looking at the hadith from a more panoramic view, he says, some people think that this only refers to the Prophet wasallam seeing behind at the rose. However, he was able to see from behind to the time before Prophet Adam as he spoke about the Prophets, their nations and their states. He saw all of this from behind him, meaning before his time, you know, behind him, or you could say uh, meaning before his time. He would also see in front of him when the guard when the people of the garden will enter the garden and the people of the fire will enter the fire. For this reason he spoke about near and distant future events, including all the events that will occur until the final day. So this is basically a euphemism. Right, so when he says in the hadith, I see behind me as I see in front of me, the ulama say this is absolutely literal. Ala zahirihi, is literal. I mean, he literally sees in front of him, behind him as he sees in front of him. Be beyond that, and embedded within that is another meaning though, in that he also sees what Allah shows him. He also sees what Allah shows him of things that occurred in the past behind him, khalfahu. So the past nations, the past prophets, their da'wah, their experiences, past events that occurred to different peoples, all Allah Ta'ala gave to him via revelation. He also sees amamahu, literally, and also seeing in front of him as a euphemism for seeing the future that Allah disclosed to him about what's going to happen until the end of time and the details about the unseen realities and the ghaib and the barzakh and jannah and jahannam and all of these things so from that perspective you can say that he sees from in front of him and behind him uh, maybe you could use the term hissan wa ma'nam literally physically so also from a broader perspective in terms of what Allah has disclosed to him that's what he's saying here. So seeing from behind him refers to the physical thing as well as the, you could say, metaphorical seeing from what Allah disclosed to him. For the future events also, it's both meanings. Both. And yeah. So seeing in front of him is obvious because, you know, we see in front of us as well. His is much more powerful. But the seeing in front as a euphemism, as a, as a metaphor or... And majaz, it means uh, seeing what Allah disclosed to him of future events. 
Exactly. When he strikes the rock and it flashes and he sees the kingdom of Kisra, the kingdom of the Qaisar, and yeah, all of these things. Uh, he then, this is the, that's the end quote. So now the author says, he then spoke about the day of exposition and the Yom Al-Qiyamah and everything that will occur in the garden and in the fire. He would say, I see the garden shown before me in this wall. Okay, so there's a narration that mentions seeing Jannah on the surface of a wall. Another narration mentions seeing the Ummah on the surface of a wall. Now how many people are Muslims from his time until the Day of Judgment? Billions and billions of people. There's no, there's no way you can fit that many people their image on the surface of a wall, literally. Likewise, Jannah is wider in breadth than all of the heavens and the earth combined. So it's impossible that something of that size could be contained on the surface of a wall. Yet in these narrations, the Prophet ﷺ is saying that he saw them on the surface of a wall. What does that mean? According to the ulama, this means that Allah Ta'ala disclosed to him uh, on the surface of a wall uh, the members of his ummah and Jannah in not the literal physical realm. It's kind of, you could call it like a vision. Like in, they say, Alam Al Mithal, you know, basically the world of images, like you see in a dream, right? Like a vision on the surface of a wall. At any rate, however it's explained, it is a kind of seeing. So the seeing of the Prophet ﷺ is described with strength and clarity. Now the beauty of Arabic is that there's two words that are related, that have the same root. You have the word basar, which is a physical seeing, right? you see something with your, your ocular eyes, your actual physical eyes, that's a basar. And then if you see with your heart through spiritual insight, what is that word? Basira, right? قُلْ هَذِهِ سَبِيلِي أَدْعُوا إِلَى اللَّهِ عَلَى بَصِيرًا أَنَا وَمَنَ اتَّبْعَانِي Say, I call to Allah, this is my path, I call to Allah with basira, with insight. So what he's saying is that the Prophet ﷺ has strength and clarity in his basar and in his basira, right? So this is what he says. He says, this sight was a transcending sight. He could see the people of the heavens, the beings of the higher realms, he could read the preserved tablet and see through the veils of the unseen. So Allah disclosed to him and lifted these veils for him to see these things. And that is unlike any other person, right? Allah Ta'ala revealed to other prophets. Allah disclosed to the previous prophets aspects of the unseen. Uh, but none of the prophets received as many disclosures of the unseen as Rasulullah received. And he's the Imam of the Anbiya and the Rasul, so that makes sense. So, after this, he mentions another narration. Uh, another side point before I go on. 
is that the scholars mentioned that in the hadith about him being presented the ummah and seeing the ummah, it means that everyone who was from his ummah until the day of judgment was presented to him and he saw them, which means he's seen you and me and everyone. Seen you. SubhanAllah. So the next narration is recorded by Imam al-Hakim, Imam Abu Na'im al-Asfahani, and Abdul Razak al-Sam'ani. They've all related from Sayyiduna Abu Hurairah radiallahu anhu that the Prophet sallallahu said, I see you from behind me. Al-Hamidi has related from in his Musnad, as well as Ibn al-Mundhir in his Tafsir, and Al-Bayhaqi from Mujahid, the student of Ibn Abbas, who said about the verse, الَّذِي يَرَاكَ حِينَ تَقُومُ وَتَقَلُّبَكَ فِي السَّاجِدِينَ The one who sees you standing and your movements among those who prostrate themselves. He says about this verse that the Messenger of Allah وسلم, used to see the rows behind him as clearly as he would see in front of him. So this, this is a tafsir of this verse. And him seeing behind him in the salat, that is a tafsir of this verse where Allah says that describes him um, as the one who sees you standing and your movements among those who prostrate themselves. And there's more than one meaning for that. Imam al-Suyuti rahimahullah has related, and now we get into some scholarly explanation. The scholars have said that the extent of the Prophet's vision is an actual faculty of perception unique to the Prophet alone. And it is a faculty of idraq, that's perception, I assume that's what he translates it as, unique to the Prophet alone. Natural laws have been surpassed for him. You know, the, the empirical norms have been broken for him. Such that he sees these vast distances and sees in the dark and sees behind him. It is also possible, he said, that the vision of his eyes was not subject to normal rules. For the Prophet ﷺ would see matters and events even if they were not physically present in front of him. According to the Ahl Sunnah, orthodoxy, it is not a condition that Allah has to be in front of someone in order to be seen. This is why they have ruled that it is possible to see Allah in the hereafter. So now he's going to some theological issues. Um, so first of, first of all, is he says here that according to Ahl Sunnah, it's not a condition that Allah has to be in front of someone in order to be seen. Why is that? Because Allah Ta'ala is not described with uh, limitations with directionality and being contained in space and time such that the, you know one object has to be here, another one has to be there for there to be vision. That's not how Ahl Sunnah understand the Ru'ya. The Ru'ya, meaning the beatific vision of beholding Allah on the Day of Judgment and Jannah is not one that requires these basic uh, rules of seeing as we see in this life, uh, of seeing you know, with refraction of light and uh, you know, distance and space and all of these things. So this is why they've ruled that it's possible to see Allah in the hereafter, right? 
It is said that the Prophet ﷺ had eyes literally on the back of his head by which he would always see. And this is mardud, this is rejected. Right? Remember, when we're talking about detailed commentary, the scholars bring whatever has been recorded, what's ever been said, and they put it into the discourse because that they're ulama. The ulama are being academic and presenting what has been said about a matter, even if they reject it. Even if they say this is not accepted because there's no, there's no reason to say that and there's no evidence for it either. So, but they say it, so it's something you learn, but it's mardud, it's rejected. It's also said that between the Prophet's shoulder blades, there were two eyes like the thread of a needle by which he would see. Nothing would be able to veil them, neither a shirt nor anything else. Uh, again, wahiya, it's, these are just things that are recorded in the books and they are transmitted, but they're not accepted. There's no narration that says that. And there's no reason to say that. In fact, the ulama, they say, these two views, although they are recorded, they are to be rejected. Because, think about it. Imagine you see someone, and they have eyes in the back of their head. They will be unattractive. They will be unsightly. It will be scary if they have eyes on their shoulder blades. Right? It's, it's unsightly. So, yeah, it's just things that have been said that have made their way into the books and then the scholars who recorded them also rejected them and Sheikh Muhammad bin Adiwi al-Maliki rahimahullah and we read from him I think last week in his work he talks about that issue and he says when we're talking about the issue of the Prophet's vision seeing behind him as he sees in front of him, it's actually detrimental to bring up those kinds of statements to just ordinary Muslims because it takes away the power and beauty of the narrations themselves by trying to say, well, how was the vision? Was it this? Was it eyes in the back of the, of the head or the shoulder blades? You know, karam yuqal. It detracts from the uh, beauty and significance of the narrations as they are. So it's better to not even mention them, right? But in scholarly works, which try to catalog what's been said about something, they're going to mention it. But it's not something that needs to be said in public gatherings. Just say the narrations as they are. He says, uh, Al-Harrali has mentioned, Allah has made this miraculous sign apparent to indicate the reality of the Prophet's inner vision. The existence of his inner vision is by his vast knowledge and his gnosis, his ma'rifah, which has been bestowed upon him by his Lord. And basically he's saying that Allah made this sign, him seeing behind him as he sees in front of him, uh, a sign to indicate the reality of his basira, Meaning just as he sees behind him, as he sees in front of him, just as he has this expansive basar, his basira is also expansive. There's a consonance between the two. There's congruency between the inner and the outer with regard to the Prophet So just as he's vast in his sight outwardly, he's vast in his spiritual insight inwardly. 
there's congruence between the two. He says, Allah has shown the Prophet ﷺ everything that is in front of him, meaning everything that has happened by the command of Allah. He has also shown him everything that will come to pass by the command of Allah. This knowledge is realization encompassed in the heart. Allah has bestowed this upon the Prophet ﷺ in his ocular senses, his eyesight, and he would see visible objects from behind just as he would see in front of him. So this is all quoting from Imam Al-Qastalani in his Al-Mawahib Al-Laduniya, his book of Seerah. Uh, so what he's saying here, he's actually referring in passing to a hadith recorded by Imam Muslim in his Sahih from Hudayfa bin Yaman radiallahu anhu who said that the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa inform me of all that shall occur before the hour. So the events, the fitan, the malahim, the major and minor signs, all of these things that will be unfolding across time and history, the, the Prophet ﷺ informed Hudayfa of that. And there are so many narrations that are just about the superlative knowledge of Rasulullah ﷺ. I have a question. Yes. So with this immense knowledge that the Prophet was given, uh, so, uh, but how accurately he related? Was there another faculty that Allah subhanahu wa gave him to, to relate everything that he, he was given? So in the Aqidah class, it's been a while now since we were at that class. How long ago was that class? Last year. Feels like two years ago. No, not last year. It wasn't last year. Because we did Tafsir al-Fatiha, then Surah Kahf. Maybe two years. Maybe, yeah. So in the Aqidah class, when we talked about belief in the Prophets, we mentioned that one of the necessary qualities of the Prophets is tabligh, to convey. And we said that the conveyance, what it means is that they, are, they convey everything that Allah orders them to convey, that pertains to beliefs and halal and haram and ethics and everything that pertains to us right Allah has ordered everything Allah orders them to convey they convey and the ulama mentioned that there is types of knowledge that Allah reveals to the Prophet that is for him alone that he's not ordered to convey to others that would be included in much of this so he conveys knowledge of the signs of the last day because Allah ordered him to convey that and he conveyed it to Hudayfa bin Yaman. Some of the things Allah revealed to him he was not ordered to reveal because it didn't have anything to do with halal and haram or direct ethics and it was just something Allah gave him. So anything that he was ordered to convey, he conveyed. Anything he was not ordered to convey or that he was told to keep, he kept. So these narrations describe not the specifics of that knowledge, but the fact that he's been granted that kind of knowledge without the specifics, yeah. Abdul Razak Al-Hakim Oh, we already read that, didn't we? Uh, Abu Nu'aym also relates on the authority of Abu Sa'id Al-Khudri that the Messenger of Allah وسلم, said, I see you from behind me. And I said that there's dozens of narrations like this. In this work that I have that's collected them, 
I, yeah, it literally goes, you can see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven and a half pages, just on the narrations, the commentaries, and, you know, different things that have been said about them. So there's a lot. So that's all about the eyesight. Now, the next section is about the hearing. The hearing, the blessed hearing of the Prophet Now from here until the end, um, it's mostly narrations, there's not a lot of commentary here. He says on the authority of Abu Dhar radiallahu anhu, the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam said, I see that which you do not see and hear that which you do not hear. The heaven groans or moans and it has a right to groan by the one in whose hand lies my soul. A gap of four fingers does not remain except that there is an angel with his head in prostration to Allah. If you knew that which I know, you would seldom laugh and weep much. You would not receive joy from reclining with women and you would have left for the desert supplicating intensely to Allah. Abu Dhar then said, if only I were a tree to be cut down. So this is recorded by Imam Ahmad al-Tirmidhi and Ibn Majah. So there's a few things we can say to unpack this. Uh, first, the Prophet ﷺ is affirming that he hears this sound emitted from the actual samawat it, themselves, the, the heavens. So heavens is, you know, everything from here up, right? He affirms that he's hearing this and that it has a right to make that kind of sound. Why does it make that sound? He says it's because there's not a single space of four fingers in the heavens, except that there's an angel there in that unseen angelic realm in sajda. But we can't see it. But no, look at the first part of the hadith. What does he say? I see that which you do not, and hear that which you do not hear. So he is seeing this when Allah wills to disclose it to him. And he hears it as Allah wills to disclose it to him. And he informs us of that which he has seen and heard. And he says, after that he talks about, if you knew that which I know. So, a couple of points here. First, Imam al-Sha'arani, rahimahullah, he mentions that it's from the rahmah of Allah that we all have this hijab. And by hijab we mean the veil over our eyes and ears where we don't see and hear these things right imagine if the veil was lifted from you right this moment and you see all of the jinn and all of the angels and you hear the sounds and the barzakh of people being punished all imagine if all of those things were lifted you'd probably lose your mind so it is a rahma to have that veil and people who have this interest in having that veil lifted because of their curiosity, they don't know what they're getting into. You know, trying to dabble in 
you know, talking to the jinn and figuring out what's going on with the jinn or seeing them and uh, that's so dangerous, right? So it's a rahmah to have that veil. And the veil is there for a reason. We are created in the dunya, we do live in the dunya. There is a belief in the unseen, al-iman bil-ghayb. Now the ghayb is nisbi, right? The ghayb is relative. So what is ghayb mutlaq for one person is shahada for another, something they see. Because belief in the angels is belief in the ghayb. But is it possible to see an angel? Yes. Is it possible to hear an angel? Yes. Most of the ulama say that seeing and hearing them at the same time is for the prophets alone. The, the two don't combine except for prophets. But if someone's not a prophet, they, it's possible. If Allah lifts the veil, they could see an angel or they could hear but not see an angel. Is it possible to see a jinn? It's possible. It's possible, although generally we don't see them, right? Allah Ta'ala mentions in Surah Araf that uh, they see you, you, uh, him and his tribe, they see you whereas you don't see them. That's the general rule, but it's still possible. So it's a rahmah to have that veil. So he mentions what is unveiled. He's telling us what is unveiled. So you can know what is veiled out there and believe in it, yet you don't see it. And that enables you to function in the world. So what's so interesting about this hadith is that he sees these things and hears these things as Allah discloses them, yet he functions as the perfect man among people. It, these things don't overwhelm him. I'm telling you right now, Allah forbid, but if the veil was lifted and I started seeing thousands of jinn flying around, I'm not going to continue this class. I, I wouldn't be able to. I'd probably close the book and run off and hide somewhere. So the fact that he can see these things as Allah discloses them to him, yet he's not overwhelmed by that, that speaks to the power of his senses and his heart. The, the sight did not swerve, nor did it transgress. So this, there's layers of meaning just in this hadith alone. So we can see it. That's the question. Well, I said when Allah discloses it. So I'm not, I'm not prepared to say that it's always. I would want to research that further. It appears that some things are veiled and unveiled at different times, but it's a constant increase in that unveiling and in that knowledge over time. But yeah, Allah knows best, but at least in the moment of him mentioning this, he's talking about what he hears and sees. Now that's the first part of the hadith. In the second part, he says, if you knew that which I know, you would seldom laugh and weep much and would not receive joy from reclining with women and you would have left for the desert supplicating intensely to Allah. Now, ask, let's ask ourselves this question. Did the Prophet ﷺ seldom laugh? It depends on how you're describing laughing. Because there are a number of narrations describing his uh, laughter in the form of a big bright smile. So, did he weep much? Well, he wept in Salat and in other occasions. But that wasn't 
all he ever did. And did he not recline with his wives? Of course not. He had, he had 11 wives, and he says that uh, of the matters of dunya that have been made uh, beloved to me are sent and uh, women. And did he ever leave for the desert and abandon the people? No. So he's saying, if you knew what I knew, this is what you would do. Meaning, if, if you had the level of knowledge that I have about these realities, seeing them and hearing them and knowing them, that's how you would respond. Right? But he's not responding that way because Allah has made his heart firm for conveying the message, for embodying beauty of character, for being that model, that uswa, that qudwa for humanity. He's not overwhelmed by these things. So that speaks to the power of his heart, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Now Abu Dhar transmits this hadith. And Abu Dhar is someone who did... He, he actually embodied these things. He didn't laugh that much. He cried a lot. He didn't really derive joy from marriage. Uh, he wasn't into that kind of lifestyle. And he did leave for the desert and lived a very isolated life from people. He was in Uzla, essentially. So he's transmitting this hadith and he says, if only I were a tree to be cut down. So it's a hal, you know, he's, he's in a state thinking about that. That was the hal of Abu Dhar al-Ghifari radiallahu anhu. So the shahid here is the, the hearing of the Prophet sallallahu We have the other hadith of Bilal radiallahu anhu. When he says to Bilal, what do you do that's special? Because I heard your footsteps in Jannah. And I think we've mentioned that before, the beauty of that hadith. Because he's talking to Bilal in the present. And he's saying, I heard in the past. What did he hear? Bilal's footsteps in Jannah, which is in the future. So Allah is unveiling to his hearing the sounds of things that have not even happened yet. And... He conveys them to Bilal in the moment. SubhanAllah. So this is the hearing of the Prophet SallAllahu Alaihi Wasallam. Now we go to the arms. Let me see how much time we have. So we'll get to the arms and then to part of the section on the touch. The touch is quite long. It goes for many pages. So the blessed arms. What's the difference between eyes, ears and arms? Eyes and ears are sense organs. The arms are not sense organs, except through touch. Yeah. So the first section doesn't talk about touch. The next section talks about touch. He says, Bukhari and Muslim have narrated on the authority of Sayyiduna Anas radiallahu anhu who said, I saw the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam raise his hands in supplication to the extent that the brightness of his underarms were visible. So this teaches us three things. Let's see if you can, if you can extract the three things you can learn from just that hadith. This is a training exercise. I want to train you in... Okay, ra raising hands. But how would you see the whiteness of the armpits? How high would the hands have to go? Like this. You see some mashayikh, they do this. Because that's number one. What do you extract from that? 
How would they see the whiteness of the armpits? What does that indicate? He's exposed. He's exposed, which indicates what about his clothing? Sleeveless or it's a rida, like one of those, like what you wear in Hajj. Simple, so like a the rida that goes across, which indicates that the arms get exposed. That's number two. What's the, what's the third one? The brightness. The brightness of the color of the armpits compared to the rest of the skin. So those three things can be extracted from this hadith. So I, I did that exercise just to get you used to looking for those kinds of things because in one hadith you can extract many things. So Anas was a young man and he's saying, I saw the Prophet do this. So they're paying attention as well. And they're recording this. Well, I mean, there's the question of aura, of course, for women, but for but for men. For, right. I've seen I've seen Mashaikh like look at Habib Omar, for example. He does it all the time. You'll see him in big gatherings, raises his hands in Arafat. He's like this, right? So that's okay. If there's a risk of the aura being exposed for women, of course, yeah. right? Do it in such a way to preserve their aura. But this is a sunnah because we find in this hadith, and it wasn't just a one-time uh, event. It would be frequent. They would describe this. Um, so that's in dua. The raising of the hands higher is, a, is an expression of tadarrah, uh, of imploring Allah Ta'ala, you know, begging as opposed to, you know, this or this. These are all good, but this is neediness, iftiqar, right? Al-faqr al-dhati, you know, intrinsic poverty and need, like that. So they're noticing this. The brightness of his underarms were visible. Ibn Sa'ad has related, this is in his tabaqat, on the authority of Sayyidina Jabir, Ibn, Ibn Abdullah radiallahu anhu when the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa would prostrate the brightness of his underarms were visible so there's two points you can extract from this hadith right the way in which he would position his arms in the sajda right we know in the Hanafi school uh, for women the, the asal is maximizing modesty so it will be brought in Right? Uh, in the other schools, yeah, I mean, the, the assumption is the woman is not exposed, so that isn't necessarily a principle followed in the other schools. So if a woman was to do that, it's fine, as long as she's not exposing herself. So we get from this hadith, his arm position in sajda. One hadith mentions that the hands would be by the earlobes, other hadith mentions it would be by the shoulders in sajda, and the arms would be out such that you could see the whiteness of the armpit. Of course, that would be praying as an imam or praying alone. If you're in jama'ah, and I've seen people do this. <laughs> people read the hadith and they're so eager to practice it that they want to do it for every prayer, including jama'ah, when they're in the row between two people and they're going to sajda and they're just <laughs> elbowing the people on their left to their, in the left and right. That's not proper. So that's number one. Number two is, of course, the brightness of the armpits were visible. That's also said. 
And you could say number three, again, the clothing. The fact that it's possible to see that tells you something about the kind of clothing that he would wear. Now, in the Riyadh al-Salihin class that we have after Isha, a few weeks ago, we were talking about this. We said that the attire, uh, the attire of the Arabs in that time for men, the default was the rida and the izar. The izar as in the loin wrap, the lungi, and the rida is just this wrap. Just like what a, people, a person wears on the hajj and umrah. The ihram garb that you wear on top, it's called a rida. And of course it wasn't white, thick, cotton, right? That's a different garment, but it would be some material that's wrapped in a certain way. Most likely these hadith are describing those moments where he's wearing the rida. The other garment that will be worn will be the qamis, which is the tunic or the shirt, what we will call a thobe today. Uh, and I mentioned in the class that if, if you look at the thobe worn by Arabs today and the qamis worn by men in the Indian subcontinent in Pakistan, the Pakistani qamis would actually be closer to the sunnah than the thobe, at least in terms of uh, how close it looks to the original, because their qamis will be uh, up to the knees, right? It will be to the knees, maybe, maybe below the knees, maybe above the knees. So that's closer to how it looked back then. And the Prophet ﷺ preferred the qamis over the rida because it is more concealing and it is simpler. And it's more concealing, obviously, because once you put it on, it's on, right? It's simpler because, you know, ladies, you may not, you'll never experience this. But for men, maybe you've seen it on your husbands or sons, when they go for Umrah or Hajj and Ihram, you see how much they're fiddling with that rida, how, how much of a hassle it is to keep it on. So simpler here means it's less distracting. You, you put it on and it's on. Whereas the rida, you have to adjust and it comes undone, you have to get it a certain way, it can become very distracting. He says, the brightness of the Prophet's underarm وسلم, are mentioned in many hadith and by many companions. Al-Muhibb al-Tabari has mentioned from among the Prophet's unique attributes was that his underarms were of a different color compared with everyone else. Qurtubi mentioned something similar and added that it was free from hair. And this is, yeah, this is what some of the ulama say. And perhaps we could say, it's something that could be investigated more because it's, it doesn't seem to me, and Allah knows best, that that would be unique and only he has that because it appears that people of different complexions could possibly have a lighter shade in the armpits than other areas that are exposed to the sun. That seems like that to me. And then when it says that it was free from hair, Qurtubi mentions that. Um, the question is, is there a narration to support that? And if there is, how do we reconcile it with the other narration which mentions the Prophet وسلم, using this uh, substance, what's it called? It's like a substance, it's a, 
it's a substance, uh, I don't remember the name, Noir, I think it's called. It's basically a substance that uh, you mix and you put it on hair and it takes off the hair. Like that stuff you get in the grocery store, or the drugstore, yeah. hair removal cream. Oh, dissolves it or yeah. just something sticky that will... No, no, it just dissolves it. Yeah, it's like a, it's a liquid mixed with a powder and you put it on underarm hair and it basically removes it from the root. That was used back then. One hadith mentions it, it was called Nawar. And uh, so Allah knows best. For the, um, the fact that, okay, because we know that we, we know the description of the Prophet the color of his hair. Mm -hmm. Typically people who have darker hair, like, you know, um, when they go to remove the underarm, even though they remove it, you'll you can see, see the, the darkness. The roots. Maybe that's what is unique to him. That's that's a good point. And okay, because people with darker hair, like when they like, even if they shaved, know, exactly. Yeah. Because right? I noticed any of my friends who are like quite fair, meaning like like more white, like right. really white, and if they have like the girls, Janata mm -hmm. or Zaina, they shave. You can't really whatever. But people like us who have like the darker brown hair or blacker hair, mm -hmm. when you shake, you will see. <laughs> that's a good point. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's a good point. And that would, that would add, that would add clarity to these yeah. narrations, I think. You're right. That's a really good point. Because uh, just saying that there's brightness, do you mean that there's a difference in the hue? Maybe there's, that exists with other people. Does the brightness here mean more like a Nurani brightness? Yeah. Yes, for sure. Are they also noticing what you're pointing out? Yeah. That there's a brightness and it's free of hair such that there's not even the trace of it yeah. when it's removed. Like there's no, uh, yeah, what's the word I'm looking for? There's no discrepancy between the color around it in, in that in the surface of the armpit, yeah, it's a good point. Well, if we just look at normal biological functions, right. the hair would grow at the age of puberty. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you mean? Well, we know he had he had hair on his arms and across the top of his chest and a, a thin line going down to his navel. And but he was not hirsute, meaning not hairy, uh, nor was he relatively hairless, with very little hair. Um, in terms of the underarm hair. He cites this statement of Imam al-Qurtubi saying that it, it was free of hair. Right? But this, you know, we need to look into the narrations. Is there a narration that supports that? You know, and if not, or if so, how do you reconcile it with the hadith, which does mention using nawar, which is a hair removal powder, right? So, yeah. So we'll... So we're going to end with the, the first hadith on the next section. And then when we come back, we'll finish the other narrations. I love this hadith. It's, a, it's one of my favorites. So this section is titled, The Uniqueness 
of the touch of the Prophet And he has beneath this a quote, the Prophet's touch unveils the greatest vision. And you'll see that from the hadith. Imam Muslim relates from Ubay ibn Ka'b. Now, does anyone know anything about Ubay ibn Ka'b? Yeah. What was his specialty? Yes. He was one of the reciters. He was from the, ul the ulama of, of Qira'ah, from the Sahaba. You know, one of those who mastered the, the recitation of the Qur'an. And that is what makes this hadith even more beautiful. The fact that that became his expertise. He says, once I was in the masjid, when a man entered and began to pray, he recited in a manner that did not meet my approval. Now, before we even go further, why would he say this? This person recited the Qur'an in a way that did not meet my approval. Why would he say that? Yes. So Ubay ibn Ka'ab has received the Qur'an from the Prophet in a particular mode, a particular qira'ah. Right? How many qira'at are there? Seven. There's seven. There's ten if you add the other riwayat, the mutawatira. So there's different qira'at, and these all reflect dialects of the Arabs. Right? And some people get really confused about that, what it means. And uh, one example that I heard one scholar say, I really liked it. He said, think about it. Um, does an Egyptian Arab speak Arabic the way a uh, Syrian Arab speaks? No, no, different. You can pick out the difference in the accent. They're both speaking Arabic. Same words. The way that a North African speaks Arabic could be different from an Egyptian, right? So the Qur'an is revealed in the dialects of the various tribes of the Arabs in a way that makes it uh, understandable to them. You have this in English too. You could speak in a New England Yankee accent, a Boston accent, a New York accent. You could speak with a Minnesota, North Dakota, uh, Northern Illinois, slightly Canadian kind of accent. You could speak Canadian accent. You could speak a Southern accent. You could speak a Bayou, Louisiana accent. You could speak a Texan accent. And that's different from a Southern accent. They sound a little different. You could speak a California accent. There's so many accents. And there's sub-accents, there's so many. So the Qur'an is revealed in these ahruf. And Ubay ibn Ka'ab, of course, is receiving the Qur'an in a particular qira'ah, a particular harf that is his own, he understands. He, he's in the masjid in this manner, reciting Qur'an, reciting it differently because he's, he has a different accent, a different, different tribal dialect. So he's reciting it a little differently. But out of loyalty to the Qur'an, he gets upset. How is this man reciting like that? That's not how I received it. Right? So he's upset. He continues. Then a second man entered 
and he recited in a way that was different from the first. Oh my gosh, now another one. When we had finished the prayer, we all went to the Messenger of Allah I said, this man has recited in a way which I do not approve of. And the second man recited in a different way from the first. The Messenger of Allah ordered them to recite each of them. And so they recited. The Prophet then approved of them both. So here, the Prophet is confirming the recitation of each of them. He says, Ubay ibn Ka'af says, I then felt a kind of denial in myself. And here, it's like a kind of inkar. Like, how can that be? This doesn't make sense to me. How is that? He says, a kind of denial in myself, as though I was in the state of ignorance, jahiliyyah. When the Messenger of Allah saw what had overcome me, he struck me upon the chest. And then he says, I began to sweat profusely, as if I was looking at Allah. Mighty and majestic is He. He's, he's shaking and sweating profusely as though he's looking at Allah. He's in this state of intensity. He said to me, Oh Ubay, it was revealed to me to recite the Quran in one dialect. I returned this and requested more ease for my community. It was then revealed to recite according to two dialects. I returned this and requested further ease for my community. The third time it was revealed to recite according to several dialects and for each time that the request was made I have been given I have given you a supplication which you ask of me. Then I said, "O oh Allah, forgive my community. O oh Allah, forgive my community." And I saved the third for that day when the creation will come to me, all of them including Ibrahim. This is a beautiful hadith because it's interesting, Ubay ibn Ka'ab is having this experience and he goes on to be one of the greatest ulama in the Qur'an itself. That's number one. Number two, a lesson you get from this hadith. Okay, what was he doing when he came into the masjid? He was praying and reciting Qur'an. He knew the Qur'an. Yet his knowledge of the Qur'an was not enough to purify himself from these internal struggles. He needed something else. And the Prophet ﷺ struck him on the chest like that. He had that experience. And all of it was removed. All those feelings were removed. And he goes on to be a scholar of the Qur'an. So the scholars, uh, Shaykh Abdul Qadir Isa, the great scholar from Halab, Rahimahullah, he passed away in 1994. In his book uh, on spirituality, he uses this hadith in the very beginning and says, this hadith teaches you that ilm by itself is not the same thing as tazkiyah, as purification. Because he had the ilm, but he was needing something else. And that is this prophetic concern, that prophetic touch. And this is showing you that seeking knowledge is a means, but there has to be something else in place. We don't. If someone wants to Get closer to Allah, they must learn, they must have some measure of study of growing stronger in knowledge, but knowledge isn't the only thing they need. 
They need something else. If it was just knowledge, then this wouldn't have happened to him. So the fact that he was struck and he had that feeling and then it was removed, that tells you that there's something more than just knowing something. Yeah. That no one has succeeded who has succeeded except by keeping company with those who have succeeded. So it's it's suhba, right? In lieu of an actual shaykh mentor who can help you in those things. It's suhba, you know. And in the absence of suhba, it's being connected to these kinds of stories and just being reminded, you know. And yeah, dua. Allahumma dulni ala man yudulni alaik. Yeah, there. There would be a there. Would, I, I get your point. This thing, right? You're correct. You're correct in your 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 conclusion, but there there would be a difference between the qiraat and the different opinion within the madahib. Why? Because the different opinion in the madahib, there are differences based on ijtihad, their best attempt, their expert attempt, to arrive at what they believe to be the soundest view based on their usul. So, we would say that, okay, if there's four different opinions between the madahib, it's a matter of ijtihad, but there is one right opinion. Now, we are not responsible before Allah to discover the right opinion and have absolute yaqeen in it because it's such a high level of ijtihad and it's it's ghani. Right, you can only do so much. Whereas the qiraat, they're all sound. It's not a question of one, you know, we differ whether this one is preferred. They're all sound. But the, the idea of variation being tolerable, obviously, yeah. Yeah, it's amazing how that happened. It's, it's, it's because of the Ottomans. It was, it was because of the Ottomans. Um, Pre-Ottoman times, it wasn't like that at all. In fact, if you look at the rules of each qira'a, hafs is not the easiest. It's actually one of the harder ones. But we don't perceive it as being harder than others because we're so used to hearing it. Both from learning how to read from the Mus'haf, reading from the riwayah of Hafs and Asim, or from all the reciters we listen to, they tend to all be reciting from Hafs and Asim. So we're just so used to it. But if you look at someone who never heard Hafs and they only know something like Qalun, when they go to Hafs, it seems so hard for them. Whereas for us, it's the other way around. It's like, oh, yeah, 
ابو عامر كسائي ورش these are like the rules are harder for us because our ear is not accustomed to them the modud have you heard kisai look up kisai kisai is i think it's the hardest one for a reason because there's pauses in between words There we can stop. Inshallah. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.